choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Godspeed, John Glenn. Roger, zero G, and I feel fine. Can I feel out? Okay, I'm out. How does it feel for the United States to be the new record holder? At last, huh? Hello and welcome. This is Michael Annis and you're listening to episode 265 of the Space Rocket History Podcast. And now, Apollo 13, Translunar Coast. On the first full day of Apollo 13's flight, Mission Control was settling into the routine. The previous shifts had watched and worked with Jack Swigert, gauging his performance and finding him a very capable stand-in for Ken Mattingly. During the Translunar Coast period, Both crew and controllers prepared for the events scheduled for lunar orbit, when things would get quite busy. As the meticulous checkout of spacecraft and trajectory systems continued, the controllers settled into a state of relaxed alertness. The easy banter among the flight director, team, and crew would leave a bystander thinking that none of these guys had a care in the world, when in fact, They were maintaining very focused attention on the job at hand while gathering their reserves for what lay ahead. In space, Jim Lovell, the lunar veteran, was now occupying the exalted left-hand seat that Frank Borman had claimed a year and a half earlier in Apollo 8. At T plus 24 hours 20 minutes, Lovell called down to Earth for some of the idle banter that he Borman and Bill Anders had come to look forward to during their week in space in 1968. Hello there, uh, Houston, uh, 13. 13 Houston, go ahead. Actually, I forgot. We'd like to hear what the news is. Okay, there's not a whole lot to it. Um, uh, let's see. We'll start with the... Uh, let's start with sports. What the heck? The... Uh, Astros survived 8-7. to seven. The Braves got five or six runs in the, five runs in the ninth inning, but they just they just made it. And in the other important game of the day, the Cubs were rained out. Uh, I have all the rest of the scores. You can tell me if you want any of them. They had earthquakes in Manila and other areas of the island of Luzon. There were uh, three tremors, and they kept the building shaking for about a half an hour or so, and it was about a five on the Richter scale. As on all Apollo flights, the Capcoms assigned to work Apollo 13 were other astronauts. The thought was that three men in a spacecraft speeding along at 25,000 miles an hour would prefer talking with a fellow astronaut. The Capcom today was Joe Kerwin, one of NASA's greener novices. Kerwin had not flown in space yet, but the flight manifest all said that one day he would, 
And that's what counted. As the news update continued, Jack Swigert realized, in the haste leading up to the launch, he had forgotten to file his income taxes. Have you guys completed your income tax? <laughs> How do I apply for the extension? <laughs> yeah, so, uh, I, I got a... Hey, that, that ain't too funny. Things kind of happen real fast down there, and I, I do need an extension. Huh? I didn't get mine filed. I'm really serious with you. <laughs> You're breaking up the room, Dad. We'll let you. I may be spending time in. I may be spending time in another quarantine besides the one that they they planted for me. We'll see what we can do, Jack. We'll get with recovery and see if we can get the uh, the agent out there in the Pacific when you come back. Uh, that's about all the uh, news we got. The uh, updated plan of the day for you guys. Uh, the uniform will be service dress, in-flight coverall garments with swords and medals. And uh, tonight's movie uh, shown in the lower equipment bay will uh, uh, be John Wayne, Lou Costello, and Shirley Temple in the flight of Apollo 13. Over. Outstanding. Of course, there would be no movie on the flight, and there would be no swords or medals or uniform of the day. But these playful references to the slow-paced life aboard a roomy, cruising Navy ship was not lost on Jim Lovell, since he was an Annapolis man. The joke in the old Mercury days was that astronauts didn't climb into their capsules, they put them on. The spacecraft were extremely small and uncomfortable, but the missions lasted an average of just eight and a half hours. In the Gemini capsule, where Lovell had cut his orbital teeth, there was about twice the interior space, but also twice the number of astronauts. As Lovell had discovered in Apollo 8, and as Hayes and Swigert were now learning, NASA's lunar ships were an entirely different engineering animal. The Apollo command module was an 11-foot-tall, cone-shaped structure nearly 13 feet wide at the base. The walls of the crew compartment were made of a thin sandwich of aluminum sheets and an insulating honeycomb filler. Surrounding that was an outer shell of a layer of steel, more honeycomb, and another layer of steel. These double bulkheads, no more than a few inches thick, were all that separated the astronauts inside the cockpit from the vacuum of space, where temperatures ranged from a gristle-frying 280 degrees Fahrenheit in sunlight to minus 280 degrees in shadow. Inside the spacecraft, with everything working properly, while on rotisserie mode, it was a balmy 72 degrees Fahrenheit. The astronauts' couches lay three abreast and were actually not couches at all, since the crew would spend nearly the entire flight in a state of weightless float. They needed no padding beneath them to support their bodies comfortably. Instead, each so-called couch was made of nothing more than a metal frame and a cloth sling. 
It was easy to build and, most important, light. Each couch was mounted on collapsible aluminum struts designed to absorb shock during splashdown if the capsule parachuted into the sea or in case of a mistargeted touchdown onto land. At the foot of the couches was a storage area that served as sort of a second room called the lower equipment bay. It was here that supplies and hardware were stored and the navigation station was located. Directly in front of the astronauts was a big battleship gray 180 degree instrument panel. The 500 or so controls were designed to be operated by hands made fat, slow, and clumsy by pressurized gloves and consisted principally of toggle switches, thumb wheels, push buttons, and rotary switches with click stops. Critical switches such as engine firing and module jettison controls were protected by locks or guards so they could not be thrown accidentally by an errant knee or elbow. The instrument panel readouts were made up primarily of meters, lights, and tiny rectangular windows containing either gray flags or barber poles. A gray flag was a patch of gray metal that filled the window when a switch was in its ordinary position. A striped flag, like a barber pole, would take its place when, for whatever reason, that setting had to be changed. Continuing the tour, at the astronaut's back, behind the heat shield, was the 25-foot cylindrical service module. The service module was inaccessible to the astronauts, and since the windows of the command module faced forward, the service module was also invisible to the astronauts. The interior of the service module cylinder was divided into six separate bays, which contained the fuel cells, hydrogen tanks, power relay stations, life support equipment, engine fuel, and the guts of the engine itself. It also contained side-by-side -side on a shelf in bay number four, two oxygen tanks. At the other end of the command module, connected to the top of the command module cone by an airtight tunnel, was the lunar module. The four-legged, 23-foot tall craft had an altogether awkward shape that made it look like a giant spider. While the crew compartment in the command module was comparatively spacious, the lunar module's crew compartment was oppressively cramped. It was a 7-foot, 8-inch sideways cylinder that featured just two triangular windows and a pair of tiny instrument panels. The lunar module was designed to support two men for up to two days. NASA was extremely proud of this pair of spacecraft and liked to show them off. Since the triumphant success of the Apollo 8 Christmas Eve broadcast from the moon, 
Crews had continued to fly with television cameras stowed in their equipment bays and with time for live broadcast written into their flight plans. The practice reached its peak of popularity during the Apollo 11 moon landing in the summer of 1969 when stations around the globe carried Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin's first moonwalk. But by the time Apollo 13 rolled around, the world had lost interest. A little after the two-day mark in the mission, the crew was scheduled for its first TV show, but none of the networks intended to carry it. The broadcast was set to begin at 8.24 p.m. on Monday, April 13th, in the time slot belonging to NBC's Rowan and Martin's Laugh-In and CBS's Here's Lucy. ABC had programmed the 1966 movie Where Bullets Fly, followed by the Dick Cavett Show. Viewers across the nation had shown little interest in having any of these programs preempted by the show from space. NASA and the Apollo 13 crew nevertheless decided to go ahead with the show and to make the feed available to any station that might want to tape bits of it for their 11 o'clock news shows. A little coverage, they figured, was better than no coverage at all. Besides, the wives of the astronauts had come to look forward to these periodic broadcasts, and nobody in NASA wanted to tell them that the custom would be discontinued. Already tonight, the controllers in Houston could see that Marilyn Lovell and two of her four children, 16-year-old Barbara and 11-year-old Susan, had settled into the cushioned seats in the glassed-in VIP gallery at the rear of Mission Control. Also with them was Mary Hayes, the wife of the first-time astronaut, preparing to watch as her husband's image was beamed down from space. The program that nobody but Marilyn, Barbara, Susan, Mary, and the controllers saw began with a choppy, murky image of Fred Hayes drifting up toward the tunnel connecting the command module and the lunar module. Lovell was reclining on Swigert's couch in the middle of the command module operating the camera. Swigert had shifted left to Lovell's couch. What we plan to do for you today is turn out in the uh, spaceship or uh, Odyssey and take you on through from Odyssey uh, into the tunnel into Aquarius and show you a little bit of uh, the landing uh, vehicle. And uh, your TV operator is now resting on the center couch looking at uh, Fred Hayes, whose head is now just about at the beginning of the tunnel and his back is against the or the optical uh, area, and Fred will uh, now uh, transport himself into the tunnel and into the uh, spaceship Aquarius. You know, one thing I noted, uh, Jack, when I first came across there, that uh, starting uh, upright in the command module and uh, heading down in Aquarius, uh, uh, there's a little bit of an orientation change that uh,
While the TV show continued, much of Mission Control was busy with other things. On the closed communication loop, intended for the people at the consoles only, most of the controllers were planning maneuvers the crew would perform as soon as they signed off the air. Gene Krantz, the flight director, led the discussion, refereeing requests, setting priorities, and determining which exercises were essential and which could wait. The chatter on this loop would have made decidedly less sense to earthbound observers than the TV show intended for their consumption. For example, GNC, the Guidance, Navigation, and Control Officer, asked for all four quad attitude control thrusters to be enabled for an upcoming maneuver. INCO, the Instrumentation and Communications Officer, wanted to confirm the configuration of the service module's high-gain antenna, which had to be transmitted on a particular frequency and set at a particular angle depending on the position and trajectory of the spacecraft. INCO needed to check periodically to make sure everything was oriented as it should be. And ECOM, the Electrical, Environmental, and Consumables Manager, Cy Liebergott, requested a cryostir on all four tanks. The service module was equipped with not only two oxygen tanks, but also two hydrogen tanks, all of which maintained their gases in a hypercold or cryogenic state. The temperature, which in the case of the oxygen tanks, could drop down as low as minus 340 degrees Fahrenheit, kept the gases at what is known as a supercritical density, a chemically odd condition in which a material is not quite a solid and not quite a liquid and not quite a gas, but something slushy in between. The tanks were so well insulated that if they were filled with ordinary ice and placed in a 70-degree room, it would take eight and a half years for the ice to melt down to water just above the freezing point, and another four years for the water to rise to room temperature. That's what the designers like to claim. In any case, and since nobody would ever actually perform this test, NASA took them at their word. The real magic of the cryogenic tanks, however, was not what happened to the oxygen and hydrogen while they were inside the vessels, but what happened when they were channeled out. The tanks were connected to three fuel cells equipped with catalyzing electrodes. Flowing into the cells and reacting with the electrodes, the two gases would combine to produce a trio of byproducts, electricity, water, and heat. From just two gases, the cells would produce three consumables no life-sustaining spacecraft could do without. Although the oxygen and hydrogen tanks were equally important in keeping the ship alive, the oxygen tanks were especially precious because they also contained almost all of the crew's supply of breathable air. Each of the two tanks was a spear 26 inches in diameter, holding 320 pounds of oxygen at a pressure of up to 935 pounds per square inch. Two electrical probes were also immersed in the tank, one running the length of the tank from top to bottom, 
was a combination quantity gauge and thermostat. The other adjacent to it was a combination heater and fan. The heater was used to warm and expand the oxygen in case the pressure in the tank dropped too low. The fan was to stir the contents, something an ECOM would request at least once a day since supercritical gases tend to stratify, rendering the tank's quantity probes inaccurate. All of these requests made by the controllers were routine, so Flight Director Krantz told them to wait until the TV show was over. While Lypergott waited for his stir and the other controllers planned further procedures, the crew continued its television tour. On the large monitor at the front of Mission Control, a milky image of the moon appeared, evoking memories of the Apollo 8 broadcast, when the whole world had been watching. Okay, uh, Jack, I'm looking out the uh, right window now, and uh, not too far off in the distance now, you can see the, uh, the objective. And I'll zoom in on it here a little and see if it brings it in better. It's actually uh, beginning to look a little bigger now. Uh, you can see quite distinctly uh, some of the features uh, with the naked eye. And uh, so far, I guess I have to even agree with uh, Jim that it's uh, still looking pretty uh, gray uh, with white spots. And now, Fritz uh, engaged in his favorite pastime, I found out on this flight so far. He's not in the food locker, is he? That's his second favorite pastime. He's, he's rigging his hammock for sleep on the lunar surface now to try it out to see what it's going to be like. Roger, uh, sleeping and then eating. Having broadcast to a nearly empty room for some 27 minutes now, Jim allowed a little relief to creep into his voice as he reached the end of his TV show. We've just got to put the cabin repress valve in, Jim said. The repress valve was a lunar module control used to help maintain equal pressure between the two spacecraft. Hearing the conversation, Fred Hayes helpfully turned the valve, causing a sudden hiss and thump to rock both ships. Holding the camera, Lovell visibly flinched. Earlier in the mission, Jim had begun to suspect that Fredo sometimes used the repress valve more than it was absolutely necessary, deriving mischievous pleasure from the startling effect it had on his two crewmates. But now, the joke had grown tiresome. I got him with the uh, cabin repress valve in there, Jack. Every time he does that, our hearts, our hearts jump in our mouth. Hoping that would be the last startling event of the evening, Jim wrapped up the TV show. And, uh, Jack, anytime you want to terminate TV, we're, uh, we're all set to go. Okay, Jim, uh, it's been a real good TV show. Uh, we think we ought to conclude it. From here now, uh, what do you think? 
And the projection screen at Mission Control went blank. In Houston, Marilyn Lovell smiled. Her husband looked fine, if a little scraggly with a three-day growth of stubble. And his voice sounded level and serene. Jim was having a good flight. Marilyn and Mary Hayes left for their homes to make sure their children got to bed on time. Down on the floor of Mission Control... Lausma looked over the list of maneuvers the crew would have to carry out before getting their own chance to go to sleep for the night. As Capcom, Lausma had some control over when the astronauts would be told to perform each task, and he decided to give them a few minutes to get their cameras stowed and return to their couches before radioing up the instructions for the cryostir, the thruster maneuvers, and the antenna readings. Before Lovell could get out of the tunnel, or Hayes could even get out of the limb, however, the controllers and crew had to return immediately to business. On the command module pilot's console, a yellow warning light flashed on, indicating that there might be a problem with the pressure in the cryogenic system. At the same time, a corresponding signal appeared on Cy Libergott's console. Scanning the data on his screen, Libergott saw that the alarm was caused by a low-pressure reading in one of the hydrogen tanks, a tank that had been presenting intermittent problems for the past two days. If the cryo tanks or their quantity sensors were getting even a little bulky, it was as good an indication as any that all four needed a good stir. As Lovell floated back to his left side couch and Swigert shimmied over to his rightful position in the center, Houston radioed up its instructions. Apollo 13, Houston. The next thing we'd like you to do is to... Uh, we'd like you to roll right to 060 and know your rates for photography of the Comet Bennett. To do that, we'd like you to enable quads C and D for the maneuver. Use all your quads. One other request, we'd like to have you verify your high gain configuration. We'd like to know what track mode, what servo, and what beam width. 13, we've got one more item for you when you get a chance. We'd like you to uh, stir up your cryo tanks. Okay, stand by. As Lovell prepared for the thruster adjustments, Hayes finished closing down the limb and drifted through the tunnel back toward the command module and swaggered through the switch to stir all four cryogenic tanks. Salutations from the foothills of North Carolina. This is Michael Annis, your host, and I wanted to say thanks for listening to episode 265 of the Space Rocket History Podcast entitled Apollo 13, Translunar Coast, the calm 
before the storm. Hope you enjoyed this episode. It was a pleasure to bring it to you. I want to give a big shout out to all my longtime listeners. Thanks for staying subscribed and extend a warm welcome to my new listeners. I'm glad you're here. Today, we salute my Moon Emoji donors. These donors have donated for three years in a row. Thank you very much, Moon Emoji donors, for your continued support. I had a few afterthoughts about this week's episode. First, I want to credit my sources. A Man on the Moon by Andrew Chaikin. Failure is Not an Option by Gene Krantz. The Apollo 13 Flight Journal. Lost Moon by Jim Lovell. The Johnson Space Center. The Internet Archive and Wikipedia. Okay, we ended on a little bit of a cliffhanger. It is the calm before the storm. Next week, the storm begins. For those of you not in the U.S., I wanted to explain about the reference to tax forms. U.S. citizens are required to submit income tax forms to the Internal Revenue Service once a year. The deadline is usually in the middle of April of each year. Now, some people procrastinate a bit and don't get their forms turned in until the deadline, and obviously Jack Swigert did that too. But, of course, he wasn't planning on getting to go to the moon on Apollo 13. So, in all the excitement, he just didn't get it done. And uh, he was kind of concerned about that, but Mission Control found it quite amusing. (laughs) When I was speaking about Marilyn Lovell watching the TV show, she was sitting in the VIP viewing room that is directly behind Mission Control. And that reminded me of the time uh, Mrs. SRH and I took the tour at Johnson Space Center, and we got to sit in that VIP room too. And for me, that was really the most memorable part of the tour, sitting there with a perfect view of the old Mission Control. I wonder what seat was Marilyn sitting in? <laughs> okay, I've posted some pictures and the audio for this episode on my homepage, spacerockethistory.com. Hope you check that out. Some of those pictures that I have may make it a little bit easier to understand what I'm trying to describe in this episode, so I hope you check that out. We were pleased to receive four donations to support the podcast over the past week. Peter W. donated at the shuttle level and earned his satellite emoji. Mark U. sent in another donation this year and moved to the Apollo level with rocket emoji. DB from Maryland donated at the Mercury level. And Robert N. donated at the Vostok level and earned his rocket emoji. Well, we have now officially entered the dog days of summer. And the dog took a bite out of Patreon donors last month. We are now down to 173. We still have a goal of reaching 218 for the end of 2018. And our overall donors for 2018 have reached 306 with a goal of reaching 418 in 2018. For those who are enjoying the content provided here and have not donated yet in 2018, please consider supporting the podcast if you're financially able. Keep in mind, Space Rocket History is entirely listener-funded. I depend upon your financial support to keep the podcast going, especially during the dreaded dog days of summer. 
to support the podcast, <laughs> go to the homepage at spacerockethistory.com, click on the orange donate button or the Patreon link. All donors are rewarded with their name on the donors page at the level they choose to donate. For those of you who have already donated in 2018, I appreciate that. And this week we're going to give away the new official SRH logo magnet to one of you. It is 3 inches in diameter, round, and will stick to most refrigerators. To select the winner, Mrs. SRH gave every 2018 donor a number. Then she put the range in Google's random number generator and got the number for Brendan Callahan. Brendan Callahan, if you would email me, mike at spacerockethistory.com, and tell me your address, and I will mail this out to you. Okay, that's about all I have for this week. My voice just barely made it through this episode. I will try my best to get episode 266 out by next Thursday. So long for now.